Hey, 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 what is going on, Cube fam? It's your boy, Bez. Hope you're all doing well. This is episode four of Cube and A, where you guys have questions, and I've got the answers. So let's just jump right into it. Question number one. I have a position in AMC. From Cube's point of view, what do you think they need to do to get their business back on track? Great question. I'm glad this was asked. It's kind of different. It's on like more of a strategy approach here. So I, I kind of like this. I've been saying this for a while now. When I examine AMC and I examine the current uh, environment that they're operating in with how we're consuming uh, all types of entertainment now, how pretty much everything has gone mobile and virtually nobody wants to really leave their house anymore. Uh, it's become increasingly challenging for for AMC to get people into the movie theaters. And what I think they should be doing is partnering up uh, with different uh, companies. Like for, let me put it, I think it's best I give an example. They should be with Netflix, maybe doing a partnership where if the new Stranger Things is going to come out, like whatever season it is now, let's say season four, whatever it is, I'm not, I don't watch a show, but I do know it's popular. Let's say episode one, they can host that in the movie theater, you know, and uh, it's don't even charge for admission, honestly. See, where AMC does such a great job uh, making money is going to be on all the upselling from the popcorn and the drinks and all that kind of stuff. And they have what none of us can do unless you have some insane money and that's have that stadium style seating. And now AMC's kind of transitioned now into like some really comfortable like leather chairs that, you know, recline, all that. They're just they're awesome comfortable recliners. And uh they provide an experience that we kind of can't replicate at home. That's what they have going for them. And I know people are gonna be like, well experience is played out. And this is true to an extent. Uh because everyone was like, oh blockbusters are gonna be fine because it's the experience of getting out of your house and going to find a movie. Uh, GameStop is, was, you know, they had an experience where, you know, you know, midnight release and things like that. And we know where those two companies have gone. And I get that, but this is more of an entertainment experience that simply can't be replicated unless you have this insane movie infotainment system in your house. Uh, I actually just went to the movie theater recently to watch Joker. And I got to say, it was my first time in the movie theater since the Wolf of Wall Street, <laughs> Okay, which has been a long time. I forgot how much I missed movie theaters. Um, and I think I will be going back, uh, to be honest, because I actually found how much I, how much more I was into the movie. Like, I haven't been into a movie like that. And part of it's credit to how good the movie was. Um, but I'll be honest, uh, more so uh, just me being fully uh, tuned in and the, the sound of everything and the lighting and all that stuff. So that's number one. I think they should be partnering with companies and not necessarily putting out movies uh, per se to get people in and admissions and all that. They they should care more about foot traffic right now. I'm a little torn on the strategy they took with regard to the the seating I was talking about because now they can get less people per room. I would love, 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 love to see AMC start doing throwback movies. If I heard they were playing... Like, for example, during Christmas time that they're going to do Home Alone, I'm going to go. 
I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm gonna go. If I find out during maybe the Halloween coming up right now that they're gonna play some old Goosebumps movies or, you know, Hocus Pocus or all these things, I'm gonna go. Maybe it's half price off, maybe it's even free. But they but they get you on the popcorn that you're gonna spend a lot of money on and the sodas and the Slurpees and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I also think they should be doing like Monday night football and things like that. You know, I, I w- it's all about the experience. I would love to go and watch a UFC event at AMC with a bunch of other fight fans and be a part of that kind of crowd, you know, or maybe, you know, even break up the rooms so they're smaller. So maybe I can book the room instead of having a room come to my house. I can have them all go to AMC uh, in a smaller room with that kind of setup. Okay. And enjoy it there. Maybe they upgrade what they can offer. Maybe they go more of like a studio movie grill where they provide, you know, actual food and menus. I don't know. I I think I think these are the things though in general that they should be doing to uh get people back into their into their theaters because uh, it doesn't seem like what they've been doing is enough as people are really really sitting back in their comfort of homes and definitely taking that route instead. And I'm noticing that across the board with e-commerce and things of that nature too, it's really hard to convince someone why they should leave their house. It's really hard. Like sometimes, I know this is a little side note, sometimes a make or break for a person at a job is work from home on Fridays. If anybody can just get that little extra bit of time so they can spend in their house, it's 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 hard to beat that. So AMC has got a serious uphill battle, okay? But I do think there's still a little bit of hope left for them if they play their cards right. So I hope I answered your question there. I actually enjoyed that one a lot. Uh, next question. Uh, do you view political transparency as a good thing or a bad thing for the markets? I am going to go ahead and say, and, and I know where this question is coming from, from. It's most likely President Trump and his Twitter account. I'm going to go ahead and lean with it. It's, it's more of a bad thing. Uh, one, there, there's levels of transparency that we need. Um, and I'd also argue what maybe President Trump is doing isn't even so much transparency a lot of times. It's kind of um, more so venting. It's it's like we need transparency as U.S. citizens, no doubt about it. But on certain topics, like we just don't... It, it, let me put it to you this way. And I know it's a sensitive subject. And um, I will say that if you look at the volatility that too much transparency in this case has caused, I'm going to go ahead and lean with bad. I mean, a f- like literally a few tweets can send the markets down 1-2%. And on the flip side, a, f- a few tweets can send us up 1-2%. And that kind of volatility is very, very hard to manage. And I, I speak with this uh, about this topic all the time with the Cube subscribers. We are a lot of times afraid to enter into positions on Friday because we are not sure what's going to be said over the weekend because you can open up Monday a completely different week, like a completely different trajectory. And that's why I say it's bad because if the one thing markets do like, yes, transparency is important, but they like consistency and they like predictability. And that is something that is not what you're getting from a lot of the tweets that we're seeing from not just President Trump, but also other political figures and even um, Elon Musk, for example, with his tweets. I, I would say that this, if you want to call it transparency, I think this level of it is more of a bad thing than it is a good thing 
because we want to be able to plan our portfolios properly and it becomes very difficult to do so when the markets are volatile enough as it is and then you add additional volatility, it becomes stressful. You're afraid to take certain positions at certain times. Uh, on the options front, you're not even sure like if it's even worth entering into because the fundamentals or the technicals can look absolutely amazing for a stock. And then boom, one tweet, literally a hundred characters, and it's heading it's heading south, the completely opposite direction. So I'm gonna go ahead and answer your question and side with it's more of a bad thing than it is a good thing. Question number three that I got: um, How many drips is good for a long-term portfolio for twenty years? For um, those that don't know, drips D R I P S is like dividend reinvestment plans. This question can't really be answered, I'll be honest with you. I just didn't want to neglect it. Over the span of 20 years, first off, I'm not even sure how old you are right now. Uh, when this question came in, I, I don't know your current age. If you're if you're 25, right, um, that answer is completely different than someone who's 45 and is looking out to 65 years old because there are much different kinds of dividends out there right now. Like, yes, it could, it could look like... Um, that 7% yield is nice, but in 20 years, is that same company's debt? Because that's maybe why they have such a high yield. People are nervous about whether it can get paid. Perhaps that debt becomes a serious issue in 20 years or even shorter, you know, and can you handle that kind of volatility uh, and, and that kind of risk? These are the questions you need to ask yourself. I don't think there's a set answer when it comes to how many uh, companies uh, with a strong dividend that you know you should be reinvesting their dividends. How much make up a good portfolio? Uh, it's because I can easily tell you, grab a like a dividend aristocrat fund, and there you're done for twenty years. You can do that too. So this answer is very difficult, given the fact that I don't have any additional details. But what I will say is, there's not one correct answer. Obviously, one or two is not going to do it for twenty years. All right, because. Even when we look at these companies that have beautiful, sustainable dividends, things can change. You're talking 20 years. Companies that we thought would never go down 20 years ago are no, sometimes some of them don't even exist anymore. Okay. Do we know if IBM is still going to be paying out a four or 5% dividend going forward with revenues falling and, and cash flow falling and all this kind of stuff? Do we know if that's, if Big Blue is still going to be Big Blue in 20 years? You know, so it really comes. Uh, how about AT and T? Right, you got that six seven percent yield, but it's their their balance sheet's kind of heavy in debt. You know, is Apple still this? Is, is Apple still here in twenty years, or do they become BlackBerry? Are they able to transition with the future? You know, technologies and future economy. These are the questions we have to ask. So there's not a certain amount I can tell you, and even if I did have all the details, it's still it's still a very difficult question to answer because now I need to know so much more about what your plans are afterwards and things of that sort. So unfortunately, I cannot fully answer this one, but I will just to give you some kind of value and not completely neglect the question. If I had to say, right, bare minimum, 20 years out, this is part of your portfolio, you have to own at least 15, 20, in my opinion. Or you could just go ahead, like I said, and grab a fund that's focused on that. That's something I would uh, look into if, if I'm you.
I hope that helped uh, with your question. Feel free to, to ask me if you want a little more, you know, detail onto that. I can definitely, we can take that uh, offline. So uh, let me know. Uh, number four. Oh, no, number five. Excuse me. Tips for focusing on tasks. This is a good one. And I like that it's not even markets related because I do like to get a full blend of questions in, on these on these Q&As. So what I've noticed for myself if I put something down on paper, I must by all means, by any means necessary, must cross it off my list. Otherwise, it will bother the hell out of me. So you guys know when I say it time and time again, I am old school. I can literally put something on the computer, right? And have like a little notes on the computer. It is not the same as when I take my pen out, put it on paper and write checklist or to-do list. It must get finished. And not just that, you have to. You have to set a deadline. You have to give it a date and you have to be so firm on your dates. You really, really do. It's almost like mental manipulation and you have to find out what makes you tick because when you find out what makes you tick, like you, you'll get so much better at it. It's as if I were to tell you, don't touch any cookies, right? And if you do for every cookie you eat, you got to drop and give me 50. After a couple cookies, man, your arms are going to be so shot, you're not going to want to eat cookies anymore. Not because you don't love cookies, but because you cannot freaking do any more push-ups. It's the same thing. So that's something that really works for me. Um, number one, okay, that is writing it down and putting a date on it. Because if it has no date, it can literally just stay there forever. So, for example, I put out um, the mid-month updates, right? There's a certain day I need to put it out by. I can get by with a few extra days past, but I don't want to. I want it done by this certain day. And by sticking with that, you know, and, and having it, looking at it every day, that it, the day is nearing, the day is nearing, the day is nearing. I, I, I almost force myself to stay on task. Number two, when... So that's like pre-task. Now, when you're doing the actual task, like I'm actually doing the document, you have, and it all comes down to who you are. Me, only a certain type of music works. I cannot listen, and, and, and a certain volume. I cannot, I don't know how people do it. And to be honest, I think it's bullshit. I don't think that people can play music full blast and actually like be extremely productive. I don't think so. I think that it needs to be at least lower, right? And I, I know everyone's different, but I'm speaking generally. I like to keep my volume low. And it's a very specific type of music. It's it's not any kind of rap. It's nothing like um, too strong. It, sometimes it's Beethoven. Sometimes it's not even like that. It, sometimes it's just like ambient sounds, like maybe a rainfall or a, or a fireplace sound on YouTube. I'm not even joking. You got you to gotta find that thing that just puts you at ease and is enough to perhaps sound out anything else that's going on around you. So if, for example, you live with your family, you got younger brother, younger sister, you got mom and dad with the vacuum or cooking up or lawn, you know, mowing the lawn outside, you want to try and combat those sounds from distracting you with something that's a little more consistent. Okay. These are things that help me stay on task. Uh, other people will tell you, shut up, just take some Adderall or something like that. I don't think that is necessary unless obviously you have like some kind of condition. I, I really think it's all about, and I'll come back to it, the mental manipulation. You have to really figure out and try things that work, some things that don't work. I've noticed weird thing about me, super weird. 
I always need a glass of something next to me when I'm working. It's weird. I picked it up in college around my freshman, sophomore year. Whether it's a glass of cranberry juice, whether it's a ginger ale, it's not something I can just keep continuously drinking. Like, it's something I sip on. I don't know what it is about it. Um, it's always got ice, okay, or something of this, of this, or really super cold, but it's not something I can chug. It's something I just take gradual sips on. It's almost like I'm putting myself in a certain mode, and I don't know, it works for me. It really freaking does. It might sound so odd to you guys, but this, you have to like literally pick things up, put them down, try them, see what works, see what doesn't work. Certain lighting can bother you. I like the room dim. I don't like it too bright, and I don't. I cannot work in the pitch black. I like something. These are all the settings. When you find out where your settings is perfect, that's how you perform. Another thing about me. Another thing. I cannot operate when I'm cold. I usually work, uh, even if my house is like normal temperature. I always got like a sweater on or some socks. I cannot work if I'm remotely cold. S sounds silly, right? And I'm probably making myself look like a freaking neurotic freak, but I I'm telling you, these are the little things that go such a long way. On top of other things like this, you want to make sure that uh, your phone is not like buzzing off like crazy. Um, like if you have like a girlfriend that's blowing your spot up or doesn't really let you breathe, it's best to put that shit on silent. If, uh, before you even get started on work, let's say something pisses you off like crazy, like it really ticks you off. Before you even get to like this assignment, go take a jog, go take a walk, and then enter into the assignment, like completely relaxed. I've noticed that too. When I go into something, uh, when I transition, I cannot go from like maybe perhaps if I'm in a heated debate about anything, I cannot just turn it off and go straight to work because that change in gears does not allow me to be fully in the task and operating at the at the like the most like the most output, the most efficiency. So those are some things about me um, that I do to stay on focus, to stay on task. Um, and, and you have to. Some of those are going to work for you. Some obviously are not. But I want you to figure out. Try a, a couple little things here. Try them out and then see. You'll know right off the bat if it works or not. Okay, and then ask yourself after you perform such task, if, you know, it was done in a, obviously an appropriate time frame, and if you notice yourself dozing off at all here and there, because if you did, edit some things, you know, some of those variables, and then see what really works for you. I hope that helped. Next question. Uh, I can get a student loan for 0.07%. Should I take it and invest it? I say no. This is no different than margin. I I hate this. I hate this. From the profile picture, uh, my guy looked kind of young, uh, and obviously he's talking about a student loan, so he definitely is. I am uh, against this uh, 100%. I I don't want students levering up any more than they already are. There's there's really so much debt already on your shoulders, and I'm speaking broadly because I don't know your situation, but. Most students today have so much debt, they don't even know where to begin. So I am against taking out that loan and investing it because honestly, if things don't go right and you're a younger guy, I'm going to assume you're, you're, a, you're a beast at investing too. I'm still going to say I don't like it because things can go south. 
uh, your maybe perhaps your understanding of risk risk management isn't that great. You feel some of the payments that are coming on, so you may be inclined to take on more risk. You may be inclined to play some options for quicker money, and then you find yourself in a pit. And because you're a student, your other funds are already going to areas to pay off the original student debt, to pay off other credit card debts, to pay off books, to pay off so many other things to feed yourself. So look, you will invest when the money is money you can afford to lose, man, or at least afford to not lose, obviously the whole thing, but afford to uh, take a loss on. Don't rush it, guys. Don't rush it. When you will get the money, you will have the free cash flow to put into the markets. Do not go and break personally, okay? Do not go and take on debt to put into the markets. I don't like it one bit. It reminds me a lot of uh, the young cats that were freaking buying Bitcoin on 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 their credit cards, and then they put an end to that shit. I don't like it. I'm completely against it. Uh, and that's all I have to say about that. I want you guys to be more uh, conscious of the risk that you're taking and to really clean up your own personal balance sheets. You want to really get rid of that debt, and then you want to really start getting into the markets, and you don't want to have to worry about that interest payment, even if it may be low. You don't want to worry about those those minimum payments and, and things of that nature and the additional stress that comes from knowing that you owe this money back. You want to invest with money that is yours. That when the stock gains, it is yours. Because after you get the gains and after you pay the tax, then you pay the interest on the other side and the principal. It's just, it's no different than margin. And you don't want to risk your credit score at such a young age. You don't want to risk all this stuff. You you want to invest with money that's yours. I hope that helped you. Next question here. Uh, best finance careers for finance majors outside of the usual iBanking, private equity, venture capital, hedge fund space. Okay, this is a tough question, and I put some thought behind it. And while you did mention the most, you know, lucrative areas, I think there's a lot of opportunity for finance majors to start looking at smaller firms in which they can get stock in the company, a lot of new fintech startups are coming up, uh, and it's and it's happening because there is really um, a huge amount of capital out there. You know, obviously we know that yields are very low around the world, and people are having trouble finding some good you know investments to make. So money is flowing into the startup space, particularly as it relates to the fintech space. And I think that a lot of these companies are looking for some controllers. They're looking for some uh, finance guys, some accounting guys to help them. Okay, they don't want to maybe pay top top dollar, uh, or they want that person to really bust their ass in the office for them. But to make up on the lowered salary, maybe perhaps find a company in the finance space, in the fintech space. It doesn't actually have to necessarily be fintech. I mean, if you have a degree in finance, you could also help just other you know, tech companies. I'm just saying that the fintech space particularly uh, is the one that is you know, going to be probably more to your liking. So I'm just assuming that. And then you get, the, you get the equity, okay? You get the shares in the company. You grow with them. And then you make bank on IPO day. I know it's rare, but it's happening every single day. 
It's happening every single day. And I think that's something that other finance guys should be looking into. And I think it's overlooked a lot. Uh, those four categories, iBanking, PE, uh, VC, uh, hedge fund space, uh, yes, amazing. I, I encourage everybody to go ahead and try and get careers in those spaces. But it's not the only way to play the game. There's some serious money being made on these IPOs. There's some a lot of these people, you're like, how the hell did that guy make that much money? He probably made it because he got in with a company uh, and grew with them. And to be honest, what I'm seeing a lot of from these guys that go into those four categories, they're out in two years. Ding, ding, ding. You're, looking, you're listening to one of them right now. Except I didn't join a firm. I started my own. But I'll tell you this much. If I did find a company that I thought was good enough and and uh, perhaps I was looking for, I would have done it. I really would have done it. Um, because I'm already kind of in that space. I just took on even more risk and started my own company. But the the underlying principle is the same. A lot of these guys, they go in there for two years and they come out and then they wind up going to the startup space. A friend of mine uh, got a super nice offer. He's in the PE space from a fintech company. He wind up turning it down, but boy, was it a great offer. It was a really great offer, and I actually think I would have taken it. And this is something you guys should be thinking about too. You have a very good skill set. Okay, you're analytical, good with numbers, and it's flexible. It's something that can be applied to many different companies in many different stages. And when you look at also the fintech space, or the, the I'm going to switch it to the startup space for the going forward now. When you look at the startup space, it's exhilarating, it's exciting. Yes, it's more risky, but you're also young. Okay, and and if you think that you're onto something with a company that you think will be in, in even larger demand in the, in the future and you interview with them and you ask them what their plans are and they say, yes, we want to grow this company to XYZ revenues. We want your help to, you know, manage everything, the expenses and, you know, the working capital and all that stuff, treasury management. And we plan on going public in three to five years. Maybe you start seeing some dollar signs. Oh, this is some good technology. Oh, this is this is a good business model. Okay. I actually think I'm going to ride with this company because let me tell you something, doing that in that kind of setting is much, much better in my opinion and much more exciting and exhilarating and fulfilling than doing it in some bulge bracket bank. So I, I, I think that more people should be looking this direction, especially with the influx of capital that is going into these companies. Uh, a lot of them are really sustainable right now. I mean, you look at a Robin Hood, right? A lot of those guys, they're probably going to take that company public it doesn't really make much money, right? As far as we, we all know, but it gets billions of dollars in backing because that's just a time we're living in right now where securing capital really isn't as hard as it used to be. So maybe these companies aren't as risky as they, as they once were, but that's a different discussion. I hope I helped you with that uh, with that question. I think that is um, an area you should uh, consider, not necessarily go for, but definitely consider. What else we got here? Um, okay, kind of a leeway. How did you know finance was for you? I talk about this quite often with my friends. I don't really have to go into it too much. I went into school to be a chemical engineer. That did not last long. That lasted one semester. I realized I hated everything to do about that. I was just kind of um, hoodwinked by my high school teachers about what the world would be like in chemistry. And it just happened to be I liked my high school professor. And she made it great. And she made it fun. And I thought it would translate in college, 17 and 18 year old me did not know better, but I sure as hell was uh, reminded and <laughs> and got the idea and the picture almost immediately. So 
that is something that I noticed. I was like, this ain't for me. And then I started realizing that I'm watching a lot more of CNBC than than Sports Center. I used to love Sports Center and, and all that time was starting to go into that. And I started finding myself buying these books all kind of subconsciously. I really wasn't thinking about it uh, until like that first semester ended. I was like, you know, I'm finding myself really focusing on the markets, focusing on companies, focusing on on uh, alternative ways to build wealth. Maybe this is something uh, I should approach. I also have a very, um, you know, outgoing behavior. I'm, I'm an extrovert and I couldn't see myself in a lab coat. And this is one of the few spaces that can handle my energy um, without me getting like excruciatingly bored. So that's kind of like off the bat how I knew. You pick up on those subtle things that maybe you realize you don't even think about that you're doing. Uh, like whether, you know, if you like fashion, you, ha- you, find, you find yourself maybe already starting to do maybe some kind of blogging about fashion. You don't even realize it or you're helping other people with their fashion. Or you, and then maybe on another side of things, you're finding yourself watching a lot of architectural videos on YouTube, like in your free time. And you're finding that you have a liking to this. And then all of a sudden you switch your major from philosophy to engineering, you know, like pick up on these things you do in your free time because there's a good possibility that that's truly where your heart lies. Because if it wasn't, you would not be wasting your precious free time looking at that kind of stuff. So that's how I notice off the bat. And if you do realize that, one thing I want to add, commit to it. Don't let it linger. Commit to it. All right. If you if you see a change you need to make, make the change. Um, number nine, can we expect, uh, what more can we expect from Cube down the road? Oh, great question. Um, so I'm going to keep trying to push out these podcasts. I, uh, I have, I have so much, uh, that I want to do with the brand. I want to, uh, continue to get more involved, um, with, with the subscription. I want to, one day I would like to, uh, take the assets under management for maybe a higher clientele. Um, I would like to do a hybrid, uh, I don't want to give away too much, but almost like a hybrid where it's not truly a traditional advisory. So things like that. I've 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 even thought about the uh, you know specialty ETF space, but that is starting to look a little commoditized to me. Where you know a lot of these uh, companies today are having trouble charging thirty five basis points because everyone's pretty much racing themselves to zero. You know when you look at commissions, right, and how Charles Schwab and all these guys are going to zero. Um, I do believe that the ETF space is starting to see something very, very similar. So that is something I'm, I'm keep, always keeping an eye on. Uh, I do like the consulting space. I do like the VC space. So these are all things I want to do with the brand. I really want to grow it. Um, I don't want to give away too much details because it's still young, but this I do, ha- I do have a three to five year plan in mind and, and I will share those developments uh, as they uh, come closer to fruition with you guys. But I can assure you, it's all very, very exciting stuff. Um, you know, if I just look at where I, I've grown the company now in the last year since launching the subscription, it's been absolutely phenomenal. And um, I'm still very excited about what there is left out there. And we're, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I'm just getting started. Uh, and the last question I got was, um, I bombed an interview. How do I bounce back? Because I'm really in the dumps. Dude... I feel you on this one, man, and I want to let you know that even with my financial knowledge, right, I've bombed interviews, and it wasn't even like I wasn't prepared for them. Sometimes you're just off, man. You're just off. Just shake it off. I remember that day. I I might have mentioned it in another interview, in another podcast. I had the interview with Prudential, 
it was a 30 minute sit down. I, I was assuming, and this is where I messed up. I was assuming it was going to be more of like a, you know, walk me through your resume, tell me, you know, your strengths, your weaknesses type deal. My guy did not waste any time straight into duration, straight into uh, yield, straight into the current fixed income market. I'm talking heavy duty technical questions about, you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, with regard to yield to maturity and things like that. Mind you, I was still trying to take these classes, right? And my knowledge of it was good, but it wasn't phenomenal at the time. You know, 19 years old, 20 years old, just trying to go for an internship. And I knew a little bit about it, but I got caught. I got caught. Uh, you can call it unprepared. I just went in there thinking something else was going to happen. It didn't go my way. He wasn't too friendly of a guy. We just did not gel from the get-go. He did not care really to get to know me. I He, he wasn't giving me any chance to, let, to ask him questions. And this is going to happen. It's going to happen when you, especially when you do a lot of interviews, it's a numbers game and some are just going to go like absolute shit and others are just going to go so perfectly, you're going to think you're dreaming. And guess what? Sometimes you can go that great and you still don't get the job. You know, I've had guys tell me, yo, I bombed that interview and then they go ahead and get the second interview or they go ahead and they actually ultimately get the job. So what I would say to you is, man, roll with it, learn from it, understand where you went wrong because from that point on with Prudential, I went in expecting anything and everything from technical to just regular normal questions. And I haven't had the same mistake happen again. You know, so don't stress too much about the blown interview. It, it, it's going to happen. It, it's, a, it's a crush to the ego in a sense. I know it is, especially when you realize the stress that you have on you to get the job, to get the internship, to how cutthroat it is. I know, but do not let it intimidate you. Do not let it beat you up. It's over. It's completely over. Go back to the drawing board. Figure out what you did wrong, what you could have done better, and 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 get the next one, man. Get the next one. It, it's really, if you get denied by a chick, man, are you gonna feel like awful? Are you gonna go and try and maybe, you know, go for the next one? It's it's really no different. I I want you to make sure you don't beat yourself up too much because now now it's on you. How you handle this now is all on you. You can handle like absolute shit and let it dwindle and then bomb the next three interviews because you don't trust yourself anymore. You have no confidence or you can completely brush it off and keep putting up them shots. That's it. That's really what it comes down to. Some of the best shooters in the league, right? They don't care if they're five for five from the get or 0 for five. They're putting up the six shot. And I want you to look at things the same way. So please don't beat yourself up. Have that confidence. We all slip up. Even the best slip up. Guys, that is all the questions I have on this Q&A. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it provided a lot, a lot of value like I always do. Or at least I hope I always think I do. Uh, take care, guys. I'll catch you all in the next one. Later.